Birds are singing. The sun is out. Spring has sprung. Has your wardrobe followed suit? If not, you can get a refresh with Bombas, my favorite brand for socks, tees, and underwear that also has an amazing mission that we support wholeheartedly. Because for every incredible comfy item that I get from Bombas, they match with a donation to someone who is unhoused. Get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. Head over to bombas.com slash hard things and use code hard things for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash hard things and use code hard things at checkout. Think about how delicately you hold your baby, you dress your baby and you feed your baby. We do that because they're adorable, of course, but also because their skin is delicate. Know this. There is only one diaper brand that we recommend to give you the gentle protective care your little one needs. And that's Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Their Swaddler's diaper absorbs wetness better versus the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection to keep your baby's skin dry, healthy, and beautiful. And when you use Swaddlers in tandem with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, you'll keep your baby's skin healthy. The wipes are made from 100% plant-based cloth, and you won't have to worry about tearing. With Free and Gentle, mess meets it's match. That's right. So download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. I walked through fire. I came out the other side. Welcome to We Can Do Hard Things. We have been waiting for this day for lo so many months. The day is here when we get to sit down with the Cheryl Strayed. Cheryl Strayed oh. is here today. Yay. I'm so thrilled to be here. Oh. I, yeah. I mean, I already said this. I love you guys and I love this podcast. So thank you. We love you back. Cheryl Strayed is the author of the number one New York Times bestselling memoir, Wild, as well as the bestsellers, Tiny Beautiful Things, Brave <sighs> Enough, I know, and Torch. Wild was adapted into an Oscar-nominated film starring Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern. Tiny Beautiful Things is currently being adapted for a TV show for Hulu and will star Katherine Hahn. Could that have been cast any better? No. Obsessed? I know. I love Katherine Hahn. We were looking for somebody who would be able to do like really funny, but also really, really deep and poignant and serious and some really heavy stuff. and. Of course, she's the master of all of that. Yes, yeah. she is. Catherine Hahn's one of my favorite actors, but Tiny Beautiful Things is one of my favorite books of all time. Oh, so thank you. This is a very big happening. Okay. In addition to writing her widely acclaimed essays, stories, and scripts, Strait has hosted two hit podcasts for the New York Times, Sugar Calling and Dear Sugars, which she co-hosted with Steve Almond. She lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband, Brian Lindstrom, and their two teen- teenagers and their two dogs and their three cats. Is that right? That's yes. right. And, and probably and counting. It seems like we're always being conned into more animals living in our house. Okay. So. I there's something that happens with the animals that I actually have a deep 
discomfort in my body with the idea that I can't have all the animals. When I see a dog, I think that should be my dog. And then I think all the dogs should be my dog. And that's not going to happen, but maybe that's what heaven is. Yeah, maybe. We have three teenagers and Glenn would then be the fourth because, you know, teenagers are like, can we get a new dog? Can we get a new cat? (laughs) And Glennon's like, can we get a new dog? I'm not the bad guy. I'm like, no, we can't have 17,000 animals running around this house. That's right. Because animals require things. (laughs) No, Abby, I just want to tell you, my husband, Brian, and I have been conned into this over and over and over. My kids, Carver and Bobby, who are now Bobby's 16. My daughter's 16. My son, Carver, is 18. They're going into their junior and senior years in high school. And since they were little babies, they would say, we promise we will walk the dogs. We will you know, do the litter box. They don't even, I mean, no, they don't no. follow through with it. It's any. just lies. I just think that they're all it's just lying. lies. They're and then liars. we get the animals. And then what happens is you end up loving them, uh-huh. you know, the most. because you can't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. cause they're the best. They're I mean, best. really they are. I do think not only do they bring us joy and pleasure and laughter and cuteness and all that stuff, which I think you especially need when you have Teenagers who maybe don't want you like loving on them and stroking them and cooing at them all the time. Mm -hmm. They're like a medium for emotions that kids don't want our direct emotion. We can't give it back to us, but we just stand around the dog and we're like, look at me loving the dog. Are you receiving the transmittal through you? (laughs) And maybe that's like a biological evolutionary. They con us because they know we need a transition animal. Yeah. Many years ago when my kids were little and still in that, phase where they they wanted to like snuggle in bed and be all like lovey-dovey. My friend Natalie had two teenagers and she had this little dog that she just loved. She said, oh, I'm so bonded to this dog. And she said, you know, I had to get him because then I would have at least one person in my family who loved me. Yeah. You know, (laughs) I know. And what I thought at the time is my kids will never be that way. And of course, (laughs) now her kids are in their 20s and they do love her and they always loved her, but they didn't necessarily act like it a lot. So now I understand what she was talking about because Mm -hmm. my kids are in the, you know, just more like they want to socially distance. (laughs) 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 Like when the pandemic came, they were at this age, I was like, they're, we're being told to socially distance from everyone, and they were forced to be like not socially distanced with the with the two people sh- they most wanted to socially distance. That's from. interesting. Oh Me my, and my god, husband. that's so freaking true. Yeah, <sighs> poor oh, teenagers poor during the teenagers. pandemic. I know. So Cheryl, we want to start by talking about your beloved mama because oh. your love for her has been such a I don't know guiding teacher light for yeah, all of it's us. Helped, it's helped all of us a lot. Yeah. So after your mama died, you were only 22. That's right. And she was only 45. And she was mm. only 45. Oh you were both God. seniors in college, right? Yes, had- we were. Oh my God. We were. So one of the things I, I heard you say that I thought was so fascinating is you, you spiraled for a while after that. Yeah. Um, in self-proclaimed what you would call unhealthy promiscuity and heroin use. Of that time, you said, in so many ways, I was trying to honor my mother by ruining my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That just rang a bell in me. Yeah. Can you talk to us about what you meant by that in that time? Yeah. So, you know, let's back up. I just want to tell you a bit about my mom. I mean, Mm. you know about her, but maybe some people listening don't, you know, she was really in so many ways, 
my hero. You know, she was this incredibly wonderful, loving mom in really difficult circumstances. She got pregnant in 1965 when she had just graduated high school and um, she didn't want to be pregnant and didn't want to marry my father. But, you know, she really considered having an illegal abortion. Um, Her parents, when she told her parents she was pregnant, they said, unless you get married, we'll send you to a home for wayward girls and you can have the baby. And, um, you know, she was, they wanted her to give her the baby and they would raise it as their own and pretend it was their own. So, you know, her choices were really limited. A lot of women in that era ended up getting married because they were pregnant and that was my mom. And so she found herself really in this relationship that by day three Mm. was violent. My father beat her up for the first time on the third day they were together. And over the course of the next 10 years, she had um, three kids with him. I'm the middle child. I have an older sister. I'm the middle and then a younger brother. And, you know, some of my earliest memories, I have this really kind of split childhood memories. My earliest memories, some of them are the most beautiful, lovely, wonderful, loving things you'd ever imagine with my mom, who made life magic in hard circumstances and loved us in a devoted, you know, with wild abandon, essentially. And then the terror and the fear and the sorrow of my father, who abused her physically in front of us all the time, and also to a lesser extent abused us. And, you know, I I remember fleeing the house with my mom, her piling us into the car and driving all night because this was the 70s. I think a lot of us forget like how recent this, any understanding of, of, you know, intimate partner violence is really actually a new thing. The first, what we used to call battered women's shelter was opened in 1975 mm-hmm. in the nation. So this is like really within my lifetime, I'm 53, has changed. There was nowhere for my mom to go. There were no resources for her to leave that marriage. And she finally and bravely did. Then I was the child of a single mom and we were poor. I I spent every year of my childhood in poverty and yet it was only economic poverty. I spent every Mm. year of my childhood in riches and it was because I had an incredibly emotionally rich mother who knew how to love and who really loved her kids. And so I think of, even though there were many hardships in my childhood, I do think, wow, what a glorious, glorious, you know, life I got to have because I had a, a mother who who made me know with every breath that I was loved. Mm-hmm. And so we did go off to college. Um, it ended up being together. It was a, a pretty amazing um, experience in those years that I was, for the first time, stepping through that portal into becoming this kind of the educated person I wanted to be, the writer I wanted to become a writer from the beginning, but to see my mom go through that transformation. And when she died in our senior year, on the spring break of our senior year, very suddenly of cancer, she only knew she had cancer for seven weeks before she died. She was like a perfectly healthy woman who wasn't a smoker, who was told she had advanced stage lung cancer and died. And I... The only words I have for it, and they're words that I knew the day she died, I I felt like life as I knew it ended the day my mother died. I thought for many years that I was crazy, 
to say that. And now, of course, through my writing about grief, I've met thousands of people around the world who say, yes, that's how it feels when you lose somebody essential. And so I felt like, how do I live in the world without my mother? And one of the things that was so painful that I know now, too, is a really universal feeling, is that the world goes on and doesn't notice that somebody extraordinary is gone. My mother on paper was the most ordinary woman ever, but in life to the people who to her children to the people who loved her she was extraordinary. And I didn't have anything as a young woman but my my own life, my own body, my own trajectory. You know, I didn't have anything with which to prove to the world that her death mattered. So I wanted to say very loudly Listen, world, we lost something big, and I'm going to wreck myself to prove it. Mm. I'm going to ruin my life to show you how mm. much her life mattered. And, of course, I didn't do it consciously. It wasn't until years later I was understanding that this was an act of love, mm. you know, that this, that this decision to say, okay, I'm going to turn away from that ambitious girl I'd been and become somebody who is promiscuous in ways that are self-destructive, that does drugs, that says yes to all the bad things, to say, yeah, I'm going to show you. Mm. That's how I'm going to love my mother. Mm. I love. Does that make sense? It makes yes. utterly perfect <clears throat> sense to me. I mean, it, it floored me. It's like, oh my gosh, you, to be able to come to that realization as well. I think one of the most interesting things that I've learned about you is that Strayed, in fact, is not your yeah. you're born into last name. You chose it. Why did you choose Strayed? Yeah. Well, it's complicated, I think, for a lot of us who have, you know, who carry our father's names and who, who those of us who have fathers who aren't people who were what a father should be to us, who harmed us rather than loved us, who abandoned us rather than be there for us. And that was that name I carried all through you know, my my childhood, Nyland, my name was Cheryl Nyland. I mean, we're sort of leaping ahead. But, you know, I, I got married super crazily young. Um, and we wanted to be like this. My, my ex-husband and I were like these feminists. And we're like, we're going to take on each other's names, which is which was, of course, then I had this like long, complicated, hyphenated <laughs> name that nobody could ever say. <laughs> Cheryl Nyland Liddick, Cheryl Nyland Liddick. And my, my ex-husband um, also took on my name, which, of course, then he was like, congratulated for being of like this amazing man, you know, mm-hmm. and I was just like this troublesome person who had insisted that he do this, of course, but <laughs> even though he did it willingly. So when we got divorced, um, when I was like 25, what it was really a simple thing, Abby, is I, I got, you know, we were doing like do it yourself divorce. Cause like we had no kids, we had two cats and you know, nothing like maybe a, like, I don't know, like a couch. some towels. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even think we had a couch. Okay. So we're doing this like do it yourself divorce. And there, you fill out the form and it literally says, my name after the divorce will be. And you know, you could have written like Mickey Mouse in there. And I was really struck by that line. And of course, by as someone who cares an awful lot about words. And, you know, at that point in my life, I realized, okay, I'm alone. I'm an orphan. My mom's dead. I don't have a father. He was still alive then, but I don't have a father. I'm nobody's daughter or wife or mother. Mm. And I 
need to step into my life in a powerful way. And what better way to do it than to define it through language? And so I spent some time searching for words. What am I? Am I a stone? I ran through all these different words and I I landed upon straight and I saw the definition of it. And I just, it was like a punch to the gut because I knew this is me. This is me. Mm. And straight, you know, it has layers of definitions and meanings, but, you know, at root, it's somebody who finds her way um, on an alternate path, who finds her way in the world without a mother and a father, somebody who carries her own home on her back. Mm. And it fit. What's interesting to me about the, that, too, is a lot of people, I'm so glad you asked the question the way you asked it, Abby, because so many people will say, well, straight isn't your real name. Mm. And which I find interesting that we use that language, because, of course, if I had taken on a, a man's name through marriage, nobody would say that's not your real name. That's right. Um, people just feel really threatened and addled and bewildered by people choosing their own names. Yeah. I think it's cool. Badass. It's amazing. Thank you. I've been Cheryl Strayed longer than I've been any other name. Mm-hmm. And it feels like my heritage. Mm. Mm. I, I read something where you were talking about how so many people think of strayed as kind of an escape, but you think of it more as uh, seeking and finding ourselves. Was that related to your hike? Yeah. One of the most interesting things that that I've come to understand about human experience is so many things um, that seem like one thing are actually at core the other. <laughs> so, you know, like when you go on the kind of journey that I went on in my 1100 mile hike on the Pacific Crest Trail, very often that's kind of framed as escape. You know, you're escaping, you're running away from you're, and, and I always think it's, we're stepping into. And I even came to understand, honestly, my, my foray into using heroin is that way. In so many ways, what was compelling to me about heroin, and I know anyone who um, has any experience with drugs, you know, understands this. And it's like, you use it and you think, I thank you. I have escaped. Now there's this other world that feels more bearable to me. It feels like a world that I don't feel my suffering. Mm -hmm. So even I, when I stepped into heroin, I was thought, okay, this is the escape. And, And really what I was looking for and looking for that experience is a way back in, a way into the depths of my suffering, a deeper understanding of how I could live with my suffering, not a way to escape it. And, and that's everything too, that happened on my Pacific Crest Trail journey. I was alone but never did I feel more connected to everyone in my life and to the world at large, like, and not just the humans, all the living things. I felt myself a part of the world again when I was radically alone. Hmm. And it was because I was consciously stepping in while also in some ways going away. And sometimes we have to go away to do that, to understand mm-hmm. how it is we're connected. So was that a way because you talked about doing the destructive things, ruining your life to do something big enough to show your pain. So was, was hiking the trail something that you thought would be a, a positive, huge action to show yeah. your loss? Was it constructive, huge act instead of destructive, huge act? And, and, and how does one decide? Because most people are like, okay, I got to get my shit together. So I'm going to 
I don't know, go to a yoga class. Yeah. But you're like, no, nope. <laughs> I'm going to go well, hike 1100 miles. <laughs> Glennon, I sometimes, I somehow think that, that we're kindred spirits in this way. In fact, all three of you, like I go big rather <laughs> yeah. than go home. So um, here's what happened. I reached that place, I guess, of rock bottom mm-hmm. that, that, you know, we, we talk about the bottom place, which I think is the glorious place of beginning Amen. because mm-hmm. the only place to go when you hit the bottom is up. Mm-hmm. When I teach writing workshops, if, if I say, let's write, you know, write about that hardest moment, um, it's always the thing that also brought people their greatest strength and courage and beauty. And so what happened to me is I was ruining my life. I was using heroin. I had gotten pregnant by the guy I was doing heroin with who um, had really become a heroin addict and and stayed a heroin addict for many years. And I I realized I was pregnant. And it was honestly, for me, I woke up and I thought, what has come of me? What has happened to me? Who am I? And the awakening I had was it's, was really connected with this destruction. It was like, I love my mother world, so I'm going to destroy myself. And the, then I re- realized that the exact opposite thing was true. This is what I said. It was like something that looks one way is very often the other way. That What was true is I have been loved too well to <gasps> ruin my life. I, If I want the world to love my mother— if I want to honor my mother's life with my own life, I actually have to become everything she raised me to be. I have to become everything I ever intended to be. Every I, I have to live again ambitiously, like that girl I used to be before she died, mm-hmm. who was going to say unapologetically, I want to be a great American writer. I would say those things out loud and it seemed audacious and wrong. And I lost my way. Like I lost my sense of, of that um, ambition. And so I woke up and, and I was like, okay, I have to do something big, not to become a different person, but to find my way back to the person I knew I was inside of me. And I think that's almost always true. Mm. That, that's the journey we need to take. That's right. It's not a like go find that great person. It's dig it back up, you know, right. the, you know, you buried it inside of you. Single-handedly impacting our environment for the better, that's a daunting task. But it's possible, and there are incredible people who are living proof that setting your mind to something and really being passionate about it will bring about change. The Goldman Environmental Prize is the world's foremost award honoring grassroots environmental activists. Each year, the prize honors six ordinary people who are making an extraordinary impact for the planet. If you look at this year's winners, you'll learn about Marcel Gomez, who exposed the links between a company's meatpacking practices and illegal deforestation, which led to a major boycott of that company's products. Amazing. You'll learn about Andrea Vidalre, whose relentless leadership resulted in California adopting its most ambitious emissions reduction regulations in history. And there are more amazing stories to discover. I can't imagine stories more important than these. Find the stories of this year's prize winners at goldmanprize.org. 
It is one of my greatest uh, dreams to hike the Appalachian Trail. And so when your book came out and then of course it got turned into a movie, I was so invested. I've struggled with addiction stuff throughout my life. So this felt like it was such an important poignant thing specifically to me. And so I have yet to do the Appalachian Trail. I am sober now, so that's good. What is the greatest lesson you learned? Like, what am I, what, what am I hoping to get out of hiking thousands of miles? Yeah. And just tell us so we don't have to do it. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, first of all, Abby, like, I want to know when you're going to do it because like, I don't want you to, you know, like I've always wanted to, I've always wanted to, like, you got to do it. You got to make a plan. Okay. Even though it's like 10 years from now. Also, I hope, are you planning to bring, have you met Glennon? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I just feel like time apart is important for relationships. No, last week, she just said for the first time in our marriage that maybe she could go camping for one night. Because Cheryl- So we're working on it. I went hiking with my son. Yeah. And we hiked and hiked and hiked for hours and hours and hours. I felt very strayed. And you thought of me. And I thought you- I saw the PCT. I didn't go you, on it. No, you did. You hiked a, a little portion of the PCT. Oh, a I little did? portion. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I also learned some great lessons, but I assume that you maybe learned more. I mean, I yeah. was on it for 12 minutes. <laughs> I'm proud of you, Glennon. I'm Cheryl. really proud of you. But Abby, maybe you and I've always wanted to hike the AT too. Maybe we'll go together. <gasps> that would be oh. amazing. And, and then I, we write a, a memoir called Really Wild. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, oh, what I learned, again, really just the biggest things, as I know you all know, are those those tiny, tiny things that you're like, oh, my gosh, if I can just live with this, if I can hold this. It was really acceptance. And what I mean by that is this. It was so hard so often that I just had to accept each moment. And I had to say, I know I have a long way to go, but the only thing I can do to get there is to take this step. And then the next step and the step after that. And so this kind of like um, the humility and the, the I guess, strength it in, it, that, it, that acceptance demands, it was mm-hmm. something I had to do every day mm-hmm. is to say, oh, it's really hot right now, but here I am. This is where I live. This is my home. It's raining. It's snowing. I'm scared. I'm alone. I'm hungry. Um, I'm mad at myself for being here <laughs> because yeah. I was 26 and I was, I, one of the things I kept thinking about is I was, I would get so mad at myself sometimes and think like all of my friends are having so much more yeah. fun than me. They're like somewhere drinking margaritas and lounging around. And I'm just out here eating refried beans by myself in the dirt. But it was really good for me to just accept what was. And it really has, um, allowed me to do that in other parts of my life too, to realize that like the only way we ever get anywhere is one step at a time. Even if we want to, you know, tell ourselves otherwise, it's not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, we felt like when we were talking about this part, we felt like it so reminded us of the, we can do hard things idea because you oh, yeah. said Part of being able to bear the things we can't bear is not about tossing them off, Mm -hmm. not about making the weight lighter, but simply learning that we have the capacity to carry it. Mm. So it's not, we can, we should do easier things or like we could do a few less hard. It's like, we can 
do this hard thing that's been placed upon us? I would say that the that like if there was just one core kind of sentence I would use to describe why, like what message people are like, what message would you take from it? And I didn't plant a message in there, but what what I think Wild is at core about is that we can bear the unbearable. Mm-hmm. And of and of course that was true when it came to lifting a backpack that I literally couldn't lift <laughs> and carrying it through the wilderness. And also in a more emotional and metaphorical sense, like I thought I can't live without my mother mm-hmm. and everyone out there who's lost anyone who was essential to them thinks I can't live without that person. And then what's true is that we can and we will and we do. And so, you know, I've always, I love that you're famous for that. We we can do hard things and it's totally connected to, you know, we can bear the unbearable. It's just different mm-hmm. language for a very similar idea. Yeah. And I think it's one that is incredibly important for all of us to remember every day because very often our first response is, I can't. Yeah. yeah. yeah and said- what's so cool about that is you don't have to believe it because the part of the grief <laughs> is that you can't believe it. You can't believe that you can live without your mother. <laughs> it's just the one step on the trail at a time, one day at a time. And then you realize that even though you can't go on, you are. Yeah. And therefore you can. It's yeah. not like you can do it because you believe you can. It's you can do it. And therefore you begin to believe that you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also about rejecting a kind of dichotomy, like the ways that we think about what courage looks like or strength strength looks like. You know, it's like when people say like, I could never do that. And it's like, well, you, you actually could. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like there's one category of people who are the strong ones who can endure tremendous loss or face very difficult physical circumstances or like fill in the, the trouble, whatever the hard thing is. It's like they're, they're not the people who can do it. And then there's this other category of people who can. It's that if we step into, I guess, embracing that you can, that both things can be true at once, that this is a hard thing that I don't want to do, but I'm doing it. And I will, and I can. I mean, I think that's really, we can do hard things and if, even if we don't like doing them, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said before about how even when you were um, a lot younger, you would say, I'm going to write the great American novel. I'm yeah. going to do big things. I had a shift in me when I heard uh, you talk about don't let your dreams ruin your life. Yeah. So good. <laughs> So good. Can you just tell us about that? Because so many times we have these big dreams that we know we're meant for them, but in the process of trying to do what we think is our purpose, we are ruining the entirety of our lives. (laughs) Totally. I'm so glad you asked that, Amanda, because when I said that, I was like, oh no, people are going to think that I'm just, yeah, I'm so glad I get to explain this a bit more. I do think it's really important when I think about how I became a writer and my, my own journey into life, I think I really needed to have that kind of ambition and that, that sense of like, I'm going to aspire to greatness. And so that in so many ways was the engine that brought me um, to a certain place and then, as with anything, our job here is to evolve. So sometimes you need one story to get to the other story, mm-hmm. and that's what I needed. The story I needed is I'm gonna, I'm gonna be great. And then I found myself in a cottage in Sheffield, Massachusetts, um, in my mid 30s, trying to finish my first 
book, my novel Torch. I just finished graduate school and um, I was just like, okay, I'm going to just finish this book. I was like two thirds of the way done with it. And, and it was the first time I didn't have a job. I just was left to write. My husband was like, finish that dang book. And I was working on it, except I ended up um, distracting myself with all kinds of other things. Mm-hmm. Reality television, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would just kind of while the days away. And then in the last 15 minutes of the day, be like, oh my gosh, I'm going to just write, like try to write. And I, I got into this like really deep shame cycle. And I realized like, I can't do this. And maybe actually, not only have I been lying to everyone else when I keep saying, yes, I'm going to, I'm writing the great American novel, that I was lying to myself because I thought, well, if I say that I want to do this, why am I not doing this? And I realized it was really deep shame and fear that I wouldn't be great. Mm-hmm. And it was really a powerful thing for me to sit down and just have that conversation with myself. So what matters more? that I write the great American novel or that I write a novel mm-hmm. that I finish my humble little puny novel that may or may not be good, that may very well just be mediocre. And I, I call this my sort of surrender to my own mediocrity moment. Yes. And, you know, which it seems like a reverse. It seems like, you know, it obliterates any like, yeah, you, you go girl message. But I think it's one of the truest ones that we all need to take under our hearts where that surrender to my own me- mediocrity, what that means to me is I just accepted, Abby, that, that lesson from the PCT. I accepted what was true, which is this. My dream is to write a book. And the only book I can possibly write is the one I write. And I don't know if it's going to be great or good or bad or terrible. And that is none of my business. Mm -hmm. That my work here, the true thing that I need to do is to let go of greatness, let go of all of those wild dreams. Don't let those wild dreams get in the way of my wild intention, which is to do this thing, write this story, and to be able to say to myself, I did it. I did it. And what happens to it after I do it? is not up to me. It's none of my business. And and it was such a huge shift in my life to just accept. It really is ultimately about accepting yourself. Mm-hmm. And that word surrender, we think of it as a kind of weakness or a letting go. But in so many ways, again, it was the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. It was me stepping into my truest power, the only true power that I could wield, which is mm-hmm. the work that I could do. And it's so often the pursuit of the thing is what keeps us from the thing. Like the pursuit of greatness keeps us from greatness. The pursuit of happiness keeps us from happiness. The pursuit of love, it keeps us from love because those things are right here in the everyday mundane things that we're doing, right? And like the idea of being amazing is what keeps us from doing the daily mediocre shit. And it doesn't insulate us from pain either. I've been a gold medal champion and a world cup champion in my life. And I was riddled with an extreme amounts of pain. So it's gotta be about that intention. I think that that's so beautifully put. Well, you have a different, a different way of looking at that. Like you said, when we read this quote together, you said 
my dream destroyed my life, but in a different way. You achieved your dream too, but she didn't surrender. She didn't do the surrendering you did beforehand. No. She just kept right. going to get to the greatness. And there was a lot of cost to that ambition for greatness. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a really interesting journey into what I would call mediocrity. Cause now yeah. I'm stepping into a completely different life. And I think that your quote, this whole concept is just revolutionary for me right now. And just being a person, like yeah. I just did soccer really well and now I'm a parent, which is the most humbling, mediocre it is. situation <laughs> but, there is. But, you know, Abby, you know, I'm curious. <laughs> I, I mean, my assumption is to like this, this shift that we're talking about. It's like in some ways, if, if you don't have that surrender to your own me- mediocrity moment, very often what's driving you to greatness is outside of you. Yes, right. right? Mm-hmm. And to me, that shift, I'm not saying that I'm definitely going to be mediocre, I'm saying I'm going to be only what I can be. Yes, and it right. might be any number of things. It might be failure. It might be. And so like to be driven by the engine that is inside of you yes. rather than the engine that is the cultures or your youthful idea of what success was or somebody else's expectation or hope for you. Like that engine always runs out of steam. That's right. It just does. And I see so many athletes and I never wanted to be one of these athletes that when they retire, they completely lose themselves. So my retirement has been spent trying to identify who I am and what I want and what is true about me and what I want out of this life. Because I think I spent so much time exhausting the steam train that was external, that was outside of myself. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's really interesting. I do think it's so important what you said about the, it doesn't mean you're going to be mediocre, but surrendering to this is my thing to do regardless of whether it's mediocre or amazing is so important because when you think about it, sometimes we don't do things even if we think they're our purpose because some part of ourselves is protecting ourselves to say, well, if I don't do it, I can still tell myself and other people that if I did do it, yeah. it would have been amazing. Yeah. Whereas if I do it and it's not amazing, I can't hold on to that, mm. Yeah. you know, myth that if I had done it, it would have been amazing. That's <laughs> right. So it's I mean, really it so keeps courageous. You, it keeps you out of the arena in a way. If you're working on a book, you're still on that little safe shelf of like, um, you know, it has the potential, right? Whenever I get the questions, sometimes people will say, well, how do you write a best-selling book? It's like, I have absolutely no idea. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. There is no answer to that question. You don't sit down and write a best-selling book. You, you sit down and you write a book that is in your heart and in your mind and your soul, and then come what may. It's and mm. to really wrap your mind around that, you do have to redefine the definition of success, the way that we've been told that success is measured outside of us by attention and money and fame and and gold medals. You know, Abby, I haven't yet fangirled all over you, but like, I mean, that is so thrilling mm-hmm. that you have those medals. Like, and there's, so that's no way to diminish that achievement. And yet it can't in the end be the thing that drives your passion for your work and for your life. Mm-hmm. Come what may. Yeah. The weather's getting warmer, which is wonderful because we can say bye-bye to big bulky sweaters and jackets and hello to shorts and tees. 
I just ordered three of Quince's muscle tanks. Check out their European linen shirt dress. I got it in the blue and white stripes. Classic. It's beautiful and summery and gorgeous and linen, and it was less than $50. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, and Quince cuts out the costs of the middleman and passes the savings to us. But they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. You will love all of it. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to Quince dot com slash hard things for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q U I N C E dot com slash hard things to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince dot com slash hard things. Cheryl, one of the last things your mom said to you was you are a seeker. Mm, mm hmm. Now you see that is true, but it pissed you off at first. And the fact that it pissed you off, we have talked about this endlessly this week, because I just love that it pissed you off at first, because it just, to me, speaks so much about the complications in relationship and between mother and daughter and like how much you put on what your mom thinks of you. And yeah, tell us about, first of all, why it pissed you off, you think? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's it's very much born of that era I was in in my life, which which made my mom's death even more complicated. Again, now I've talked to so many people who relate to this, but when when you lose a parent when you're in your teens or early 20s, you're developmentally doing that, you know, that social distancing, like your mm-hmm. actual job, you know, as a teenager and, and early 20s person is to establish yourself separate from your parents, right? And so I didn't want my mom to say I was anything. Like I wanted to define myself. So there was first this instant recoil of like, oh, you can't say who I am or what I am. (laughs) She said that to me in the context of, I had told her I wanted to join there. There was in the hospice where she was dying, there was this, uh, like I saw this sign for this grief support group and I told her I was going to go to it. And there was something about it that, um, that embarrassed me too, that like she could see in me that kind of longing I had to sort of join, you know, join the world or find others or like find, find things, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it was a lot of it was really just that not yet wanting to be seen so clearly by my mother. Mm -hmm. And of course now I would welcome her seeing me. Longing is embarrassing when you're young. Yeah. Anyone seeing your longing or your reaching or your needing or your need, it's like, that's only when you're young. Well, that stop for you. No, I think at some point we can. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Good point. Well, good point. It's too cool for school. You don't want to embarrass yourself and you don't don't want to make yourself vulnerable to it not happening or whatever. Yeah. You don't want to ever admit you don't have everything you need. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So Mm -hmm. now though, how do you feel about the word seeker and what is that to you? Oh, I think that's would would be one of the words I would use to define myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, it's interesting, Glenna, that you're asking about this because I I would use that word to define myself. That that is pretty moving to me to think like yeah, my mom said that to mm-hmm. me all these all those years ago, and that's what I've spent my life doing. And I, yeah, I think I'm very much a seeker, and I think in my work as Dear Sugar, one of the things I knew when I first took on the Sugar Column. Now, like, gosh, 12 years ago or so, 
um, was that I wanted to seek, I wasn't going to be the person who would have the answers and to just tell people what to do, but that I would seek with them mm. the questions mm. that sat beneath their questions. I would seek with them the ways that to, to see more clearly their conundrum or their sorrow or their suffering or their, their question. And I do think that that's my work from a very early age. What I felt called to do was to be a writer. And it was because as a reader, I could feel that that sort of big transcendent thing we look for when we read and write. It's like I could feel myself connected to people who were not me, mm-hmm. um, people through all time and place. And I've always sought, you know, to make that kind of beauty in my life and to find that beauty in my life and also to be a person who helped people seek that in their own lives too. So what do you find yourself seeking now? What are you seeking Oh my goodness. Well, you know, that's such a great question. The last couple of years of my life, the last, basically since the pandemic, I would say that they have been the second hardest era of my life after Mm -hmm. the era during which my mom died. It's been a very serious, difficult time, um, just in my family's life and in my life as a mother Raising two teenagers through the pandemic has been hard in all the ways that we all have been reading about in, you know, in the New York Times and elsewhere about like struggles that teens have had during this time. Mm-hmm. And I've been right there in the thick of it. And it has brought me, Abby, you used this word humility. It's the most humbling thing I've ever done is be a mother. And I'm really trying to find my way, always to figure out how to be the best mother to my kids and also how to be stable and balanced in my own life when they're struggling. I said earlier that a teen's job is to find independence and to find themselves, step into their own identity. And I think a lot of parents during this era of kids' lives go through that too. Who am I um, without my kids? Can I be happy if my kids aren't? Those are questions I've been asking myself a lot. And so the the way it's been humbling for me is to remember that I'll that I'll always be a seeker mm-hmm. and that there are happy times and there are sad times and there are hard times and there are easy times and they're going to come and go and come and go and come and go again and i think sometimes th- there've been parts of my life but i've gotten a little complacent about that mm-hmm. you know things were great and i thought everything's going to stay great mm-hmm. and then things haven't been great and it's like wow how do i move through this with some intelligence and grace. So humble seeker that I am, Mm. I'm just trying to do that thing I've told the world to do, (laughs) to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Which leads to my next question. Do you still hike now that you have a family? Of course I hike. I mean, we're going to hike the AT together, Abby. Um, (laughs) That's right. Reese, get ready to reprise your role. (laughs) That's right. Reese is like, damn it to hell. That was hard. Just playing her. Yeah. Um, so so I nature. love to hike. It's still my favorite thing to do. And my family loves to hike too. I, I, the, the, my kids know every mother's day and on my birthday, they have to go on a hike with me, but they, <laughs> I've also like made them hike before the pandemic in 2017, we went to New Zealand and we hiked the Milford track and the root, root burn track. New Zealand has amazing hiking trails. Mm. Um, and yeah, I'd love to hike so much. Yes. How stressful to go hiking with your mom and your mom is fucking Cheryl Strayed. Yeah. 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 And like, <laughs> they're like, when can we stop? She's like, like just never. another 400 we miles, kids. 
Well, that is such an awkward thing when I when I have been hiking and then I meet people on the trail and I just always try not to really like say <laughs> who I am because people are so disappointed. They're like, you're Cheryl's friend? <laughs> like, yeah, I'm just an old middle-aged mom trying to hike along the trail. So. <laughs> okay, that's so good. That's amazing. But so yeah, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm Cheryl's straight motherfucker. Yeah. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that on this podcast. That's oh. right. <laughs> We've been disappointed that it took this long. Yeah. Okay, okay. Yeah, I'm Cheryl Strayed, motherfucker. Or as Liz Gilbert would say to me, you're Cheryl fucking Strayed. Yeah. Yes. 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 Yeah. I love Liz. Yeah. I loved your episodes with her. Oh, Isn't she the you. freaking she best? Is. She's the she absolute is. best. We're lucky to have her. We, oh we really, we really are. What are your little spiritual practices now? Like you can't go for a hike, but life is so stressful and you're trying to make it through the day. What are your little things that you do to survive? Walking, I mean, I know this is different than a hike, but I think of myself as a sort of, I do like walking meditation. Mm -hmm. And I think it's one of the things that I've literally never gone on a walk and felt worse afterwards. Like you always feel a little bit better. Yes. Um, It's this part, it actually is part of my creative life. It's part of my sort of psychological well-being life and part of my spiritual life. Mm Yeah. To there's something about silence and motion that's really powerful, whether it be running or walking. I used to be a runner. Now, now I just walk. That's something I turn to a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, books. I mean, it's interesting to me how from a very young age, like I said, I when I first felt called to be a writer, the beauty and the power and the truth in words is makes me feel like it puts me in contact, I think, with the divine. Mm. And I turn to words. I turn to stories and poetry and words by others that make me feel less alone. Um, I think that most people don't think of reading as a sacred act, but I do. Mm-hmm. I think of literature really kind of as my religion, to mm-hmm. be honest. It's, it's in the pages of books that I've felt um, that thing I think a lot of people feel when they talk about God Mm. and in writing them too, you know, I feel like all of my work is really spiritual, even though I am not what you would consider, I guess, I don't really believe in God, but I think I believe in the divinity that is in all of us. And my portal to that divinity is absolutely through my writing. There's a lot of subscription-based stuff nowadays, which is great. You might get one as a gift. You might really want to try something during a trial period. You might even make the occasional impulse buy. But what happens when you forget you signed up for this platform or need to cancel after the trial period on the platform? For me, I can never even find where I signed up to begin with. It gets overwhelming, but Rocket Money is here to help. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of 500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash hard things. That's rocketmoney.com slash hard things. Rocketmoney.com slash hard things. 
So for you being a renowned advice giver, what's the best advice that you've ever been given that you still keep in the back of your mind and heart? Well, this one is from my mom. And in some ways, it's also an answer to your previous question about what I do to feel better each day. And my mother would always say to me, put yourself in the way of beauty. And when she would say that, I would just be a surly teenager and roll my eyes. <laughs> but what, what I later came to understand is that she was right. What she would say is, no matter how hard things are, how matter, no matter how miserable or ugly things seem in your life, and on any given day, you always have the opportunity to put yourself in the way of beauty. There's always a sunrise and there's always a sunset. And it's up to you to be there for it or not. Mm. And I really did just ignore that. And I was on the Pacific Crest Trail. And I'd been out there maybe 50 days and nights by that point. And, and I was standing there watching yet another gorgeous sunset. And I remembered this advice from my mother. And I realized she had given me in so many ways, the tools I needed to save myself. Mm -hmm. And it was something that simple Mm -hmm. is that like, you know, seek beauty, put yourself in the way of beauty and your life will be better for it. And I think about that all the time, every day, Mm -hmm. you know, like I told you the, 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 the struggles I've had over these last few years, um, feeling just like things are difficult in my life really, each day going and seeking something, something simple. It can be the simplest thing, the thing that makes you feel that you are in the presence of beauty, that you are part of beauty. It's a powerfully transformative act to do that. So for our next right thing, this is just a little helpful thing we like to give people at the end of an episode so that they can, you know, if they just don't forget everything else we just said, just one little easy thing that they could take with them. Can you talk to us about our ITSs, our inner terrible someones, and how we can banish them. Just, yes. <laughs> just oh, leave did us you say how that. we banish them? I, we can't banish them. You're right. Yeah. What the okay. hell is the ITS? Okay, the it's. The yeah. it's. It's your inner terrible someone. I know all three of you have yeah. one uh-huh. inside of you. We all do. Like okay, so here's here's. Can you have thing. multiple it's? <laughs> this is my I, I, best advice. I triplet it's. <laughs> you have like. Triplets. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You have a lot of it's. Yeah. We all do. Let's put them into one big monster. It's your inner terrible someone. Um, and that is that that voice inside of you that says, no, you can't, you shouldn't, you're stupid, you're ugly, nobody wants you, you know, all, like all that stuff. You can't write, you're a terrible mother, all that stuff, right? And what I think is incredibly powerful and important um, is to remember that that's that, that is not something that we necessarily need to reject. Like for a long time, I think I felt like that is a sign that I'm not an evolved person, a sign that I'm some in some way falling down at the job of being like an enlightened, healthy, whole person. And, you know, this shift in me um, really in my own life is when I realized, no, no, hello, it's my friend. You are part of me. And here is your seat at my table. You get to be one of the people who guides me in my life. But the thing you need to know about yourself is you're like 99.9% of the time dead wrong. Uh, you're not going to be the, the thing that rules me. And we all have a friend you know? like that who's always yeah. wrong. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. For me, the key, Glennon, was 
not to work against it. It's kind of like when I was, you know, a lot of people ask me, like, how did you hike the Pacific Crest Trail by yourself? Weren't you afraid? That's always the question. Weren't you afraid? Weren't you afraid? And one of the very first decisions I made when I decided to hike that trail alone is that I could not let fear rule me, Mm -hmm. which is different than saying I wouldn't be afraid. Okay. So the decision we're always making is like, here are all the feelings I have. Shame, fear, doubt, like all of those feelings we have, are they going to be the thing that makes the decisions for us, that mm. rules our lives, that tells us what we can and cannot do? The, my answer to that is absolutely no. So harnessing your it's is saying, I see you, you're part of me, and you're not my ruler. Mm-hmm. My ruler is my wise inner sage, my deepest inner truth, that clarity at the core of me that knows that I am worthy of love, that I am capable of of great things, even if they're mediocre. And I'm going to allow that that bigger, I, I guess what I think of it as that, that bigger self within me mm-hmm. to guide my life. And it's can, you know, trail along behind me, you know, yammering away, saying all those negative things, but they're not going to be the things I believe. Ugh. It reminds my dad, he always says, you're never as good as you think you are, Glennon, and, but you're never as bad as you think you are. And it's like the two voices that screw us up are the one you started with and the one you're ending with now. The voice that says, you are great and you must be great. That grandiosity yeah. is just the flip side of the it's, right? That's right. Those That's right. two highs and lows of telling us who we are, what those, because really what the voice inside, the wise one you're talking about is always saying is just one more step. That's right. The wise voice isn't the grandiose one. Mm-mm. The wise one is to say it's it's a very humble, very grounded, and very I think generous and loving voice. When I was on the Pacific Crest Trail, and that thing that I said about deciding fear wasn't going to be my ruler, and that's what allowed me to go. And you know, one of the ways that I would trick my brain is I decided before I went that whenever I felt afraid, what I would say to myself. I would directly like out loud say, I am not afraid. I am not afraid. I'm not afraid. And of course, the contradiction is I only said it when I was afraid. (laughs) And I think that in some ways, like Glennon, you were talking about those two oppositions, your it's, and then that grandiose voice, like for me to say, I'm not afraid while I'm afraid. Like, but what happens when you, you know, bring those two together is the center, which is, okay, I'm a little bit afraid, but guess what? I'm brave. Mm. I'm a courageous person. Mm-hmm. I can do this hard thing. Mm-hmm. And so like doing hard things is not about it being easy. No. It's not saying like it, it, it's in your imagination that it's hard. It's saying I can do hard things. Yeah. That's the middle path. Cheryl, thank you for being a sage of the middle. That's what you do. The two dichotomies. <laughs> I cannot go on. I will go on. Uh-huh. Yeah. I am afraid. I am not afraid. And as wisdom is the ability to hold two different ideas at the same time and keep walking. Thank you. That's right. Thank Glennon. you. Yes. Oh. Thank you, dear sisters. I could talk to the three of you all day long. I mean, you're just such wonderful, dear, brilliant, brave, good people. Well, lucky Thank for you. us, we are going to continue this conversation. Right. We're going to be right back in a couple of days with an incredible episode where Cheryl turns into sugar. That's right. Do not forget. Do not miss this next one. But thank you so much, Cheryl Strayed. You are a guide for us and for the rest of you. We know you can't go on, but you will go on. See you next time. 
Bye. Bye. I give you Tish Melton and Brandy Carlisle. I walked through fire, I came out the other side.
Can Do Hard Things is produced in partnership with Cadence 13 Studios. Be sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. Especially be sure to rate and review the podcast if you really liked it. If you didn't, don't worry about it. It's fine. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location. It's the neighborhood. It's so much more. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with state rankings and student-to-teacher ratios. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework.